first of today's Bible readings is from Revelation 15. And that's on page 874 of your Bibles. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. The second reading is from Revelations 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go. Pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went out and poured the bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miracle, miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world 
to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it ever occurred since man had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Sort of park here rather than there. You're all so far away. I do assure you that these pews do work. Uh, so next time, if ever you're a bit, you know, you're worried that they're a bit shaky, I assure you I've checked them all personally. They can all bear my weight. I'm sure they can all bear yours. Um, that's a pretty full-on passage. Let's be honest about that. Uh, so why don't we pray to see God's goodness even through something like this? Let me pray really quickly. Um, dear God and Father. Uh, We know you are a good, happy God, and we know that you love us, and yet we also know that because you love us, sometimes you give us the hard word, and it looks like uh, these chapters are some of those words tonight. We pray we would take them in the right way, in the right spirit, still seeing you as a good God who loves us, and seeing how that works. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look, I don't know if you like apocalyptic movies or not. You know, movies about the end of the world. Some people absolutely love them. And I'm very proud to say that I'm one of them. It doesn't really matter how silly it is. If a film has lots of famous buildings falling over in it and a big lizard, I'm there. But some people hate them. Maybe that's you. You spend your Friday evenings scanning the new release section in frustration, huffing and puffing as you search for a film where the world doesn't get hit by a meteor, drowned in a tidal wave, overrun by zombies, or have a famous building pushed on top of it by a big lizard. I suppose it takes all sorts, and I'm not going to pass judgment on you for your choice of weekend entertainment, just just so long as you eventually shuffle off to the period dramas and leave my end-of-the-world selection intact, I'm happy. But whether you like them or loathe them, apocalyptic films are certainly hard to avoid. They seem to be everywhere. In fact, the statisticians tell us that they've never been more popular, and we certainly seem to have a healthy appetite for them. We just love watching movies about the end of the world. Even more, we love watching movies that give us the sheer variety of ways the world can end. It seems these days you can take your pick. You can have it destroyed by aliens, like in War of the Worlds, or war, 
with the upcoming book of Eli. Or disease, 28 days later. Or, most popular recently, the environment, the day after tomorrow, 2012, the road. Now, as mindless as these films often are themselves, I think the last of these examples is important. Disaster films have always been around, and they've always reflected our fears as a society. In the 1950s and at the peak of the Cold War, it was films about nuclear holocaust that caught our attention. And today's no different. As we become more and more aware of the dangers of climate change and that this really could be serious, even the end for us as a race, one of the ways we work through that as a culture is by making movies. The fact is, the end of the world and the idea of the end of the world just doesn't seem so ridiculous anymore. Of course, we still love watching bad movies to unwind on a Friday night, and most of them are still just zombie-roaming, alien-zapping fun. But now some of them have taken on an additional, more serious thrill, the thrill of something that might actually have some truth to it. All of a sudden, the line between a film like 2012, the ultimate popcorn movie, and an inconvenient truth, a serious documentary, has become blurred. Now, I think there's something healthy about that from a Christian perspective. It's good to remember how fragile our life on earth is and how easily we could lose it. Reminding ourselves of our own mortality has seldom done human beings any harm. But from a Christian perspective and from the perspective of the Bible... There's also something misleading about these films. Because as we read over the book of Revelation, we realise something's wrong with them. And what's wrong with them is that they're just not apocalyptic enough. They're not apocalyptic enough in the the end-of-the-world way. Because I don't know if you've ever noticed watching any of these films, the world in them never actually ends. It just takes a beating. The very reason you can talk about a film set in a post-apocalyptic world is because they're only ever partially destroyed, with some little pocket of humanity holding out against the odds and vindicating the power of the human spirit. Tonight, I think we'll see just how perverse that is to the biblical imagination. But more importantly, they're not apocalyptic enough in the technical sense of that word. You see, technically, the word apocalypse doesn't mean a disaster. Apocalypse means a revelation of something, an uncovering of something that's been hidden until now. But these films don't uncover anything, really, because they don't tell us about God. And if revelation shows us anything, it's that God will be front and centre at the end of the world. When the world ends, it will happen at God's say-so and in God's way. And as we've seen in tonight's chapters already, that will be terrible and glorious in equal measure. It's a hard couple of chapters we're looking at tonight. Staring down the barrel of the end of the world shouldn't be easy for any of us. But God promises that his word is good, even if it's hard. Let's hang on to that promise for the next 20 minutes as we come face to face with the world's end.
I'll be doing it in just two points. They'll reflect the two chapters that we've looked at tonight. If you're taking notes, the first point is simply this, chapter 15, the beginning of the end. Now, as you'll know, if you've been following our series here at Church by the Bridge for the past few weeks, the central section of this book of Revelation describes what life is like between Jesus' first and second comings. He describes a world of tyranny, chapters 6 and 7, and chaos, 8 to 11, and persecution, 12 to 14. The world John describes in between Jesus' first and second comings is far from perfect. But it's not all bad. I mean, in chapters 8 and 9, when the angels blow their trumpets, you see that they only destroy a third of the world. Now, of course, taken literally, that still sounds pretty bad. But that's not John's point. John's point is simply there that now the majority of the world is still okay. I think that's true. We do see a world full of evil, but it's also full of good. And somehow I think we recognise that the good still outweighs the bad. But now that we've come to chapter 16, we see John draw this slideshow to a climax. And he prepares us for it in chapter 15, in which he sees three things. We'll go through them quickly. The first thing he sees is in verse 1 of chapter 15. Why don't you follow it along with me? Let me read it to you. I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. You see, just as God sent angels with seven trumpets, now he sends them with seven plagues, according to John. But here's a crucial difference. These plagues will make God's wrath complete. They don't destroy a third of the world. They destroy a lot of it. The second thing he sees is hard on its heels. Look there in verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who'd been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. So the second thing he sees is something standing by the sea. Now, if you've been reading this book carefully, you'll notice that we've already seen someone standing by the sea already. In chapter 13, verse 1, we see that it's the dragon representing Satan who's standing by the shore of the sea as the beast emerges from it. But it's not the dragon standing by the side of the sea anymore. It's his conquerors. And what's more, it's a different sea. This is the sea of glass from chapter 4, verse 6. That same sea which surrounds God's throne and reflects its glory as it glitters. But again, there's been a crucial change. This sea of glass is now mixed with fire. It's molten, ready for the dragon and the beast to be thrown into it and destroyed. It's a picture of those who's been rescued from this world and now stand stay safely next to the sea by God's throne. Whatever happens next, John wants us to know that these people will be safe and then John shows us that third thing. You can see it in verse 5. After this, I looked at in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and they wore golden sashes around their chests. The temple in heaven opens, and seven angels with seven plagues go out from it. It's a frightening picture. 
But the most frightening part isn't the angels. It's God. If you notice there, the plagues are the wrath or the anger of God. And this is not just the anger of any God, some petty minor deity. This is the wrath of the God who lives forever and ever, in John's words. And no one can get near him until that anger has been dealt with. Look at verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Which means that those people standing next to God's throne on the shore of the sea must have already had that wrath dealt with. It just stands to reason. Somehow they've managed to enter this temple. They've come into God's presence. They've made their peace with God. And John in Revelation makes no secret of how they did it. It's because the Lamb of God, this character throughout the book, Jesus, has offered himself there in that temple as a sacrifice for them. Of course, all of this is just picture language for what happened in history on the cross. Jesus died for these people, for us, to take the blame, to take the wrath of God, so we might be right with him. I think the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 just sums it up so beautifully, so pithily, when he says that Christians, because of this, have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. You see, John makes it really clear here. The only way to have peace with God, the only way to have him lay down his arms against you, is to have his son take his anger in your place. Which means that for those people standing here by the shore, waiting to see what will happen to evil, what will happen in this lake of molten glass, the upshot is that there's nothing particularly special about them. Christians are never presented in the Bible as particularly good or particularly worthy people. We've just been forgiven. And as we come to read chapter 16, as we come to see what happens to those who haven't been forgiven, we do well to bear that in mind. Because that brings me to chapter 16, which if chapter 15 was the beginning of the end, well, this is really the end of the beginning. The way God describes this end of the world is the same way he's described things before. Revelation is a book of patterns, and this is no exception. Just like the first four trumpets of chapter 8 to 9, the first four plagues here focus on the natural world. And you can see that there. The first plague is poured out on the land, verse 2. The second is poured out on the sea, verse 3. The third is on the rivers, verse 4. And the fourth is on the sky, verse 8. However, it's not the land itself that is the focus here. God's not angry with the elements, but the people who rely on them. God's not going to destroy the environment because he hates it, but because it's the home of those people who rebel against him. And he deals with those people who rebel against him more directly in these last three plagues. We'll go through them in turn. We see here in verse 10 that the fifth plague is poured out on the throne of the beast. 
Well, now, who's that? Well, if you were here last week, we'll know that we've already seen this beast. This is the beast, the picture from chapter 13, who represents human governments gone haywire. Human governments like those of North Korea and other countries in the world who've taken on an almost godlike role in the lives of their people, who ask people to worship them rather than God himself. The sixth plague follows on from that. It's a good deal more cryptic. You can see it there in verse 12. The sixth plague is poured out on the river Euphrates, which is now in Iraq, drying it up to prepare for the kings of the east. Now, this is definitely cryptic, but I think the point is basically this. If the best example of the beast in John's day was Rome, the Roman Empire, then Rome's greatest enemies were a crowd called the Parthians. And the Parthians lived in the east, behind the Euphrates River. With only the waters of the Euphrates to hold them back, when those waters dry up, as they do here in this plague, there's nothing to stop them from invading. Again, he's using picture language, but his point is clear. Even the most seemingly invincible nation will fall on this day. He's done six plagues. We're expecting the seventh. But then there's a pause. Because it seems like this world, which God is raining these plagues down on, won't go down without a fight. We see our old friends from chapters 12 and 13, the dragon and the two beasts, Satan and those people he's controlling, gather the nations of the world to fight against God in a vast battle at Armageddon, the valley of some of Israel's greatest victories. With the forces of the world massed against God here, you'd think you'd expect a titanic clash, something you'd see in an apocalyptic film. But it's a total anticlimax. The battle actually never happens. You can see it there in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it's done. The seventh plague is poured out and it's all over before it's begun. And all that follows in the rest of the chapter is the total destruction of God's enemies. Now this is all very well. We've explained the pictures. We've seen the patterns. We've seen what John's doing here. But what does it mean? Well, I think the answer, like the answer to so many things in life, is in the context. If this doesn't sound too sacrilegious, it's a bit like Shrek. Shrek is full of pop culture references, and you need to know them to get half the jokes. Well, Revelation's the same. Its pop culture is the Old Testament. And I'm convinced that John here has a particular part of the Old Testament in mind. He's thinking of the Exodus. We all know the story. God demands Pharaoh release his people from slavery in Egypt, but Pharaoh refuses. To force his hand, God sends plagues, one after another. But Pharaoh only becomes more stubborn. Finally, God sends a tenth plague in which every firstborn son in Egypt dies. And it's only then that Pharaoh gives in. Even bearing that in mind, you can probably already think of ways that this story sounds similar. Well, I'll just mention three ways. First of all, you can see it in the types of plagues he's describing. You notice how they're so similar to that story in Exodus. God sends painful sores. The seas and the rivers 
turn to blood. There's a plague of darkness and hailstones. But you not only see the similarity in the types of plagues, you see it in who the plagues are poured out on. Now chapters 12 to 14 dealt specifically with governments who'd tried to take the place of God. And John singled out Rome as the best current example of that kind of government gone crazy. But now he's broadening the picture to take in the whole world. We're not just now presented with Rome by John, who by history's watch was really just another latest pretender to God's throne. Now we're presented with the Bible's very picture of rebellion, Egypt. And Egypt in the Bible doesn't represent just one nation, but all of them. You can see that there in verse 14. When Satan gathers his troops for the world's last stand against God, he went out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. In short, the picture here isn't of plagues being poured out on Rome or even on oppressive governments all over the world. It's a picture of plagues being poured out on all of rebellious humanity as represented by Egypt. Thirdly, you can see it in what those plagues do to their victims. The key feature in the story of the Exodus isn't actually the plagues themselves. It's Pharaoh's stubbornness. If Pharaoh had given in, there need only have been one plague, and yet there were ten. But no matter how hard God batted him, he just dug his heels in even harder. And that's exactly how we see people respond here in this passage, isn't it? Verse 9, God scorches them with the sun, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. Verse 11, God plunged them into darkness, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. Verse 21, God pounds them with hail, but they cursed God on account of the plague. Even in the face of utter annihilation, the world that rejects God refuses to turn back to him. We're stubborn. It's a devastating picture. It's the final judgment of God on every God-defiant person. It is quite literally a description of the first day of hell. What are we to make of it all? How are we to cope with the horror of this scene? Perhaps silence is the only proper response to such an awesome display of God's justice. Even heaven was quiet for half an hour when the seventh seal was opened a few chapters earlier. I'm certainly not going to be able to say everything about hell tonight or answer every question. But before we leave tonight to give this scene the silent contemplation it deserves, let me leave you with just three things from these chapters to mull over. Firstly, none of what they describe has happened yet. For now, we live only in the shadow of the justice of God, not under its weight. It's not too late to ask God to forgive you. And he will. God loves forgiveness. It's like his totally favourite thing. If mercy were a gun, God has, is trigger happy. He never acts more quickly than when accepting an apology and never more slowly than when waiting for one. 
And if you're worried that it's too late, just remember the lengths he went to so you could stand next to him by his throne. So you could stand with him on the shores of the sea. So you could enter the temple of his presence. Trust me, God wants us living in chapter 15, not 16. You only need to look at Jesus to see that. Now, you might not be at that stage yet. Maybe you're quite happy with the way life's going and the roots you've put down in the world. Fine. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. It was one of the first things God made. But it would be foolish in the extreme to turn your life into your God. It would simply be ridiculous to ignore the real God and devote your life instead to your family and your friends and your career and your house and your car and your overseas holidays and think that any of those things are actually going to last. Because the simple fact is that they won't last. Because the world won't last. And if your roots are dug down too deep into its soil, you won't last either. Of course, as I said before, none of this has actually happened yet. The whole world hasn't been given over to destruction, praise God. But as we saw in chapters 8 to 9, some of it has. A third of it has. There is pain in the world. And I'll bet you've had your fair share of it. My only advice to you is the advice of the Bible. When you see just this foretaste of what's happening, listen to it. It's a clue about the where the world is headed. C.S. Lewis puts it in such a succinct way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The imperfections of this world are not sent here to ruin it for us. They're God's hint that it was only ever designed as a temporary address and that one day we'll all need to move out, either to live with him or not at all. Secondly, the fact that this world will one day be destroyed surely motivates those who are standing by the shore, believers, to evangelism. We know that this world won't last forever. And so we'd better get on with telling people the gospel. I won't say anything about that. It's simply impossible to improve upon Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthians. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as though not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. But thirdly, and finally, I think these chapters help us to cope with the fact that many people, even after they've heard the gospel a hundred times, won't respond to it. Some of these people will be strangers. Some will be workmates. Some will be our closest friends and family. And if they go to their deaths continuing to reject Jesus and defying God to the last, they will go to hell. There's just no getting around it. This passage doesn't console us about that fact. The doctrine of hell isn't supposed to console us. 
Even Jesus, the very God whom humanity defied to the point of crucifixion, wept over the fate of Jerusalem. But it does console us about God's justice. It assures us that what happens in hell, as awful as it is, is fair. In particular, it tells us that what happens to people in hell is fair, even though their punishment lasts forever. And I think this is what often bothers us most, isn't it? We can accept that people should be punished for sin. We know that. And even that that punishment should be serious, given the majesty of the one they've rejected. But forever? Even for the most trusting of us, that's hard to accept. Could one lifetime's worth of sin really warrant an eternity of torment? I think the problem is that we often picture hell in the wrong way. We picture it as a place full of people suffering, but who've now seen the error of their ways and are pleading for mercy. And so when we hear that God refuses to hear their pleas simply on the ground that they've come too late, we see him as callous, like a lecturer who refuses to accept the essay simply because it's handed in a minute late. But in this passage, we get a hint, just a hint, that maybe that's not the right view. Far from God's punishment turning them to repentance in hell, it might well only make them more rebellious. In the words of chapter 16, even in the face of the plagues of God's judgment, people curse God and refuse to repent. It could just be that people actually go on sinning in hell and hence continue to be punished for their sin as long as they do it, which is forever. C.S. Lewis again puts it so succinctly. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. It may just be that people are in hell not only because they chose to be, but perversely because they choose to be. God, ever the gentleman, offers them heaven and when they continue to refuse it, won't force it upon them. We can't take comfort in the fact that hell exists. We're not meant to. But we can take comfort from the justice of God. And we can take comfort from the fact that for those of us who are still alive, this justice has been dealt with by Jesus. And that anyone who wants to exchange God's justice for God's forgiveness can do so any time they want. God has been so good to us. When you think that everything we see, every plague pictured before us in these chapters, God has himself experienced on the cross when he died and took the punishment we deserve. Now God loves us and God has proved that to us. That's what makes him worthy of praise. That's a hard word. I'm really happy to take questions about it afterwards. Uh, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're thinking. I, I, I take absolutely no pleasure in reading a chapter like this. And I certainly take no pleasure in preaching it. You might not take any pleasure in hearing it. But I'd urge us as people, people who call themselves Christian, people who this is the first time you've ever been to a church, to at least think about this. And come and talk to me about it afterwards. I'd love to. But just for the moment, before the musicians go up, let me pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we, we're sorry as people, whoever we are, for just how fickle we are sometimes. Um, every day we see a cry for justice in our newspapers for someone who's done the wrong thing and in our darkest hours we ask you for justice to vindicate us. And yet it seems that sometimes we can give it but we can't take it. Um, we don't know what it would mean for you to actually bring justice on this world. And when we see in a book like Revelation just exactly what that means, we're shocked by it. But God, we know that you are good. It's precisely because you're good that you are so just. But it's also precisely because you're so good, so merciful, that you give us an out. That you took this punishment upon yourself in your son Jesus, that you poured out every plague on the one you love the best so that we might not need to. We pray if we're stubborn, whether we're Christians or not, please melt our hearts. Please have us worship you as you would have it. And please have us take you up on your offer wherever we're at, knowing full well that you are a God who just delights in forgiveness, who can't get enough of the stuff, who invented it, and who wants us all to have it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.